record just to check levels and stuff, but um, it's such a weird thing to be like Baltimore is really the city that I feel like I became who I am now. And it's just such a weird thing to be like to for, I don't know, like a third of my life to be in a place that kind of happened more or less by accident. I mean, kind of just I applied to a bunch of grad programs and UB was the only place that accepted me. And I was like, OK, well, I guess I'm going to Baltimore. Um, <laughs> friends and welcome to so poetry um i know that it's been a bit um i feel like i blinked in january was over but we're looking <laughs> looking forward and looking ahead um and i'm actually really really excited for this particular episode uh because i have a guest who i've wanted to get on for years and it has finally happened um so my guest today is sophie clark uh, Sophie's poetry can be found a ton of places, including The New Yorker, Poetry London, American Poetry Review, Agni, Blackbird, Plowshares, among a ton of other places. Uh, she's the author of Meet Me Here at Dawn, which was publish published by Yes Yes Books, and the chapbook Blank Versus Recovery, published by Pilot Books. Um, Sophie is the 2019-2020 Kinnon Visiting Writer at the University of North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill. She's also the recipient of a ton of fellowships and residencies, uh, including a recurrent long-term residency at Art Farm, which is kind of how she got put onto my radar. Um, she writes collaboratively with the poet uh, Corey Zeller um, and is also the editor and co-creator of Teen Sequence. Uh, and this is something that I didn't know. Uh, she was originally a dancer uh, and has done interdisciplinary work, uh, including creating scenic texts for dance theater and choreography for performance art. Um, and she is currently teaching ongoing online uh, classes in addition to offering private literary editing services. So ton of things happen and ton of things have happened. But um, Sophie, thank you so, so much um, for talking with me today. This is um, I, like, I, I will say a dream come true because you're, you're one, of the, <laughs> one of the poets um, that has been on the top of my list for a long, long time. Um, and it, it feels kind of surreal that I'm, I'm able to talk to you. Um, but... Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so you, um, I think, I don't know if you were at Art Farm at the same time that um, one of my friends was, uh, Danielle Ariano, but I, I don't know if it's just that you were like, your presence was just kind of there um, <laughs> and other people talked about you but after I guess it was maybe like a year because we were we were both there in I think 2015 maybe uh, yeah yeah 2015 um and um I was there I think in early October and then just by sort of a fluke of scheduling Danielle was there like a two weeks or a week after I left um and then when she came back, we were kind of just comparing notes of the experience and stuff. And she told me about um, you. And then I followed you, started following you on Instagram, and then picked up uh, Meet Me Here at Dawn. And I was like, holy fucking shit, I need to, <laughs> I need to talk to this person about poetry. Um, 
because I absolutely love that book. Oh, um, thank you. And like, I don't, I don't want this to be like a, like a gush fest, but it was like, it was a real, it was similar to, um, oh fuck, I, man, it's like Dara Weir, I think. Mm. Um, the book that she published with Wave that I can't, I can't think of the title off the top of my head, um, but the the sort of like openness and like the the tension between sort of like dreamlike abstract kind of like ponderous questionings of things and contemplativeness and really pinpoint precise imagery felt like you your work and her work felt sort of like similar or at least maybe like akin or like in this like adjacent neighborhoods to each other mm -hmm. um but yeah i was like i i had her book for a while and then i read yours and i'm like oh shit yeah okay um, it's also the um, uh, Maggie Nelson's Jane of Murder also weirdly feels like it it matches up kind of with Meet Me Here at Dawn, um, mm. but I'm not I, I'll have to I'd have to revisit that one to get this <laughs> the more sort of like concrete analysis. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. So poetry. Um, <laughs> I I'm curious. This is something that I I enjoy asking. Um, a lot of my guests just because it's I'm I'm really interested in seeing the sort of like origins or the genesis of, of um, like a poetry practice but like how did how did poetry start for you mm, well my uh, father um, let's say that I would be like dad where are my ballet shoes and he would say whose woods these are I think I know. And I'd be like, Dad, I just want my ballet shoes. And so it was this, it was a constant um, sort of this churning, rambling thing from my father. And he would just like start saying a poem randomly in reply to whatever, apropos <laughs> of very little, <laughs> when I was growing up. And, um, sort of constantly singing through the house. So I think that my sense of song was also, you know, grew up being a musical theater kid and really entranced with, you know, it's just entranced with language and how it spills over itself um, and how its little pieces can be hinged together. So I think that that was, yeah, probably looking for my ballet shoes was the beginning of <laughs> was the beginning of poetry for me. That's and my father, um, his constant recitation. That's was wow. So did you like it? When did like did you? I guess did you grow up writing poetry, or when did that sort of solidify for you as like a a thing that you knew that you wanted to incorporate into your life in in some way? Well, I don't know. I think that there's, I think it's sort of a vocation that I'd always, you know, we read a lot of poetry when I was growing up. All the things that, I mean, not all the things that people read. We really read a lot of A.A. Milne. I guess I also ended up knowing a lot of poetry before I was really writing it, um, writing it myself. But I always... I think I always just sort of wrote poems in my in my journals and writing in high school, and it just seemed to be something that I was I was always 
doing. There's no, I guess, I guess what happened, one of the things that happened again with my father, he's so, so involved, um, was that I had printed out a couple poems um, from our, you know, our, our printer in his office and left a couple copies. And he took these poems, to my horror, as I would find later, he took these poems to a colleague of his um, at Carnegie Mellon, the poet Jim Daniels who he didn't really know wasn't necessarily to think acquaintances with or something and said uh, to Jim without me knowing, um, you know, here's my, my daughter's poems. I think they're pretty good. Uh, are they any good? <laughs> and I guess Jim said, yeah, they're pretty good. And so I began this relationship with uh, Jim Daniels, um, which was this totally like, and I, I didn't meet him for years. It was this totally disembodied relationship where I would give my dad a couple of poems in an envelope and he would give them to Jim. And a couple of weeks later, Jim would give him an envelope <laughs> of, of, you know, comments that's, that he'd written on my poems. That's wild. That's like, I, it's like 80s spycraft sort of like dead, <laughs> dead poetry, dead drops. <laughs> well, it, it set me up really well for um, for being, I don't want to say a career poet, but for being very interested in constructive criticism. Like, I remember my first actual poetry classes in college. I was probably, I don't know, 20. And people would get comments on their poems and be like, in tears, <laughs> just like inconsolable, or like totally unwilling to workshop. And getting criticism had had always been a part of how I learned to write, how I learned to be a better writer. So it wasn't, um, I wasn't startled, say, by feedback. I wanted it. Right. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I feel like that's a really, that's like a, that's a, a tough seat to navigate in like an entry or intro creative writing class, um, mm-hmm. at least for, in my own experience, that like, you know, you have the, you have the people that really want to be in that class because they've had some experience with writing or they have some interest in writing and they, they, mm-hmm, want, mm-hmm. they want to get better with it. And then you have people in the class that are just looking for like an easy elective. Um, <laughs> so the, I guess the caliber of feedback that you get ranges pretty drastically from the like, you know, th- like insightful to completely indifferent um, but I mean, I, I feel like having had that sort of, I guess, like critique mentor relationship with someone before getting into, uh, like a, a workshop class, probably put, like, like you said, it's like you started off a couple of, um, like a lap or two ahead of everyone else of having just had that, that experience. And also the, um, I don't know, maybe like the absorption of, of the critics of being able to look at things with the, like that critical eye. Um, and cause that, that was something for me that took, I don't think I was, I honestly don't think that I was a good like workshop responder until probably halfway through maybe the end of my time in grad school. <laughs> um, you know, cause like it's, it's, I guess it's, it's like, for me, it was one thing to, to, be writing in undergrad um, and not really having had enough time with 
poetry in and of itself because like i i personally came to poetry pretty late um and just you know like not having the the sense of it and taking a long time before i could really respond to and offer suggestions to pieces as if or not as if i was trying to be the one to write it myself um, mm -hmm. yeah which like working on the um I, I run a small press and that has been honestly one of like the the greatest life experiences that i've been able to get is just the wide variety of poetry that i've i've edited um and to be to very consciously be like okay this is totally not the voice or the tone or the form or any of the, any of the things that I typically do in my poetry. So I really have to like set all that stuff aside and meet these poems on their own terms and figure out their own sort of internal mechanisms. And so that I can successfully offer suggestions of like, Oh, I think this is what you're trying to say. This might be a way that you can phrase it and like still keep in the, the, the syntax or how language is being used. And like, you know, when I was, when I was 23, I was shit at that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I came, I think I was very lucky with um, Jim being a mentor to me so early. I guess I must have been, you know, 15 or 16 and having this, um, this very adult critique. And he did not, what I think one of the greatest gifts that he gave me early on was that he wasn't, First of all, he didn't tell my parents. He wasn't saying, oh, your daughter's writing some poems about smoking cigarettes. Uh, <laughs> you, know, you might want to look at that. I mean, to, uh, you know, on the, on the relatively harmless <laughs> scale of things. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, he gave me craft suggestions and suggestions about strengthening image and about strengthening sound and is this line break doing what it could be doing for your work. So I went in, I, I think I really was given a very good base level on, you know, let's approach whatever we're approaching on a craft basis and not on a, on a content, on a content basis. Yeah. That would have been a totally different relationship <laughs> that did not last very long. Yeah. And I, yeah, I imagine that that was probably really, really encouraging too, to have like just the attention, like that sort of one-on-one -on -one attention and knowing that like, you're not because that, that was always something that I felt like in, in my various classes whenever I got um, you know like teacher feedback was the knowledge of like like how much time were you actually able to spend with my like five poems when you have mm -hmm. five poems from I don't know let's say like 15 other people or 15 other mm -hmm. students that you have to read which like in great and um, in grad school it was great because the classes were typically capped at like I don't know like eight to 10 or so. So it felt the, the, I felt like the, the, um, the closeness of reading that I got from my teachers was like of a, of a higher caliber, I guess. Um, just because I knew that they could spend more time with the work, but I imagine that having like a one-on-one, -on -one, you know, knowing that like this person sat with my work for as long as they did to give, to give me this feedback was probably incredibly encouraging too, especially at that young age when you were, you know, like, testing your chops and testing the waters of, of what you could do creatively. Yeah, you know, I mean, it, and it was very influential for me as well in terms of being a mentor, being available to um, young poets, actually. So 
the creation of Teen Sequence, which is under um, under the umbrella of the literary journal Gigantic Sequence, that ended up happening because when I was about, I think I must have been 26 or so, uh, uh, someone wrote to me out of the blue, this young person named Robbie, and said, hello, <laughs> I'm 14, you're my favorite poet, will you read my poem? And wow. that became a mentorship of like of a decade really and it was so um my my relationship with jim just really influenced how i deal with like how i deal with younger poets the kind of encouragement that i want to give to them and it also really showed me that uh maybe my most valuable relationships with poets were sort of I don't know who I wanted to learn from would not necessarily be in the classroom. And that has mm. proved true for the last two decades that I've had some really, I mean, I do have currently really valuable relationships with, um, with writers who I've, you know, was never in a class in a class with and just have decided to take an interest, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's been great. Yeah. That's, that's a, it's really neat to see that sort of, I don't know, I guess for lack of a better term, like generational transference of like that type of, um, like that type of mentorship and, and that type of you know, like taking what you learned from Jim and passing it on to like a younger generation of poets who then in turn could very well like take the skills that they learned from, you know, like skills that were foundation at gym that have been sort of filtered through you that there's then filtered through them that then they can teach or give to like another younger generation and, and to be sort of like in that um to be part of just like that progress or part of that i guess like the that linear literary lineage yeah you know i mean and there's something too about doing about working with another writer outside the umbrella um, of academia outside the obligations of academia. That's 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 just really like really incredible. Not that you can't have pure, you know, teacher-student relationships within those confines as well. But they are confines. <laughs> you right. Know? I have to turn my poem in at a certain time. I have to turn my student feedback back to that person at a certain time. But mm -hmm. you know, actually, about Nebraska. I met a couple years ago, um, had met Ted Pooser out at Art Farm, who randomly had come, somebody had written a song, and they found out that he lived nearby, like two hours away or something, an hour and a half away. And so he came to, uh, he came to the farm and sat with us for, you know, an hour and sort of walked around, um, walked around the land. And he ended up inviting me out to, Garland, uh, Nebraska, tiny, tiny town where he had a studio. And I started this relationship with him, which I never could have expected, um, which has just been so incredibly fulfilling. And he's not somebody who I, and it's not as if, I think that the interesting thing too, with the people I've created those relationships with outside of academia has been, they're not people who, whose work I was reading and admiring and studying and 
and hoping to get their attention. Mm -hmm. um, they were much more, they were really very organic um, connections that had to do with, you know, Ted and I connected because we both <laughs> loved writing about lice in the field, <laughs> just paying attention um, to those kinds of things. And it's been, um, yeah, those relationships have been really wonderful. And actually now my life is completely full of these, of these things that, that Ted has given me. I'm sitting underneath um, this mobile of, of sandhill cranes. I don't know, were you aware that they, they migrate out in Nebraska? And he just, for some reason, I came to his, what, he doesn't have that studio in Garland anymore. Um, after, you know, he sold it after years and years and just getting older. But he had remembered that I'd admired this mobile. And it showed up one day last year at my door. Wow. Uh, just like, and just this kindness, I think that when you are working when you have that connection through poetry um, independently of, of an academic universe, mm -hmm. then it, it extends into so many more aspects of, of your life and, I don't know, creative pursuits and so on. Oh, yeah. I mean, I like I, I totally understand that because it, it feels like when you are in like if you if it's a like a teacher student sort of interaction you like you said you're sort of bound by the the con, the confines and the constraints of like that interaction in the academic sense like there's a, a teacher that i had in undergrad that since i graduated like we've actually become friends yeah which is not a thing that i think ever would have happened had i you know like if i would have gone to grad school there and then maybe a phd there like i think that we are would have had a pretty strong professional relationship, but I think that it was really only once I was able to get some distance and we could interact and connect, you know, on maybe not an equal footing, but more of a, a like a peer sort of uh, place that it's like, she's, she's one of a, one of my dearest friends. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I guess it feels like when, like if you are, Similar, similar to the experience that I had with grad school, you know, like everybody in the workshop is going to be attentive and present and there because that, like, they want to be there. Um, mm -hmm. Like when you're working, I imagine when you're working with um, with poets, just like one on one in a mentorship, there's that sort of implicit understanding that like both of y'all are doing this thing because you actively want to do it. You know, you no one's no one, you don't have to. No one's forcing you to. You're not there for credits. Um, you're doing it because there is a there is a passion or an engagement or you know whatever on both sides that are that's keeping that that mentorship or that relationship going. Yeah, yeah. I think also that there's more. I think that there's an intimacy that's possible that's really important for um, for me with my creative relationships. That, you know, because when I had, you know, I had this relationship with Ted now where we talk as easily about poetry as we do about, you know, the, <laughs> the sort of inner workings of our, of our lives. He is now 81. So when I write to him and say, how are you doing sometimes? <laughs> it's all about, oh, my, I had to get this thing for my teeth and that thing and fixing the garden and so on and so forth. But mm -hmm. it's also, you know, you create real full relationships that mm -hmm. 
instead of, well, I think too, there's just things that you can't say in a classroom. Um, <laughs> you know? I, I would agree with that. Yes. But, um, but yeah, it's been, it's been really interesting and I've been, it, it's been great too. This last year I was doing the adroit, um, Peter Luberge, who does the adroit journal, um, and runs the mentorship program over there. I think they have, and they, they have like kind of a huge program. Um, I don't even, I don't know how long they've been doing it, but he reached out to ask if I would mentor some students this past summer. And that was really interesting too, coming at it because they were coming at it from, <laughs> from an academic, from an academic space. You know, when you have, it was like this weird middle space because on the one hand they had been, they signed up for the program and it had all these certain boundaries, but I have, you know, kept one of those relationships after, um, after that more formal period ended. I don't know. I feel pretty invested in making sure that teen teens in particular mm-hmm. have, uh, have a person who they trust <laughs> to to guide them in their creative endeavors and don't, you know, that just the way that Jim didn't say to my parents, oh, your daughter was writing about <laughs> X, Y, Z, um, but just dealt with me as a person and as a, a craftsperson who mm-hmm. I can also sort of guide in that way. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's honestly been something that I've been... Um, I mean, maybe not within like this particular context, but just I guess maybe in the larger sort of context of of being a part of the like literary community at large or like literary lineage in seeing that like I don't know, like I it doesn't feel like I'm personally slotted into any of those spaces where it feels like I'm I'm building up those types of relationships or or making maybe not even a difference, but like making an impact in that way in, in other people's lives. Um, mm-hmm. which is, you know, I mean, just a thing that like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's a, like at this point or this stage for me, I don't know if it's anything that's actually actionable other than just the sort of like gnawing feeling that I, I have that I should probably, you know, sit with and figure out like what, what is a, a good outlet for that. But, um, mm-hmm. I mean like the work with the, the, the press that I run has been, I guess to an extent sort of occupying that space of, you know, mm-hmm. like, like, uh, you know, the, if not for the press, like 13, maybe 14 books wouldn't exist wow. pot- potentially. Wow. Um, I mean, I'm sure that other people would, would have picked them up, but you know, it's like there, there are a couple of really weird ones that I'm, that, you know, I don't know if of the other presses would have t- taken a chance on, or at least in that form or, you know, whatever. But um, so in that respect, it's nice to be able to like look at the back catalog and, and see like, you know, I, I help like usher in, you know, like 14 books into the world. And that's, that's yeah. nice, but it's, and I have had some like lasting relationships through that, but I don't know, maybe I, I, don't know, I get sometimes get like really critical about those things and get like really analytical and really like down on myself about it. But I don't know. Um, so if you, if you had a, uh, poetic pantheon, who would be the top, like four or five poets for you? 
Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't have to be of all time. It could just be for, like, right now. Because I, I, there's, like, two or three for me that are sort of stationary, but the other sort of, like, top five slots will, like, shift around. But, um... Hmm. Well, you know, I, I remember I had this class once uh, with Gregory Orr. It was actually, like, a sort of a residency with him. And he was talking about how we have like a family tree, like all creative people, mm. essentially, ha- you know, we have a lineage that we exist in. Mm-hmm. So I could say, so when I think about my lineage, right, mm-hmm. in, in that capacity, not necessarily like, who's my top, I don't know <laughs> if I can say who my uh, my top players are right now, but, um, but certainly, like, my lineage is, that you know Robert Frost would be first because that was the first like mm-hmm. constant year that I that I had in my in my head, and and I think like I think there's poets who I was probably exposed to as well or over the years who I didn't really realize were influencing me or who I was. Well, let me backtrack that. Not that um, that I didn't know I didn't know of them. Like I remember I brought a poem once. Um, Terrence Hayes has also been another person who I didn't have in any class. He just happened to like live in my neighborhood. I've met him once at some, in some passing, passing um, poet situation. And so I, then I would like babysit for his kids and we would go have coffee and he would read some poems of mine and give me some feedback. Mm-hmm. We'd like eat a cookie or whatever. But, <laughs> but he had told me once that he had read a poem and he was like, Oh, I can see you've been reading, uh, you've been reading Linda Hall. And I was like, no, I don't know who that is. And he, you know, read black mare, her poem, black mare to me as we sat there. And I was like, Oh, <laughs> I'll be right back. I'm going <laughs> to go read everything she's ever written. Uh, so there's just people who I feel like that I, you know, you find and like, and click with, and then you carry, mm-hmm. they carry you or you carry them um, forward. So I guess I'm not answering your question. No, um, no. I mean, I think that that's, that might actually be a better way. Cause I've been, I've been trying to think of a way to, to like a, a consistent way to phrase that question. Um, but I think thinking about it as like a creative lineage um, or like a, like a creative family tree is probably a better way to look at it because that actually ties into a, one of the other questions that I, I like asking my mm. guests is that like, <clears throat> do you, or have you, has your writing gone through like shifts or have there been noticeable, you know, ty- or like tectonic to, you know, like maybe minor, but still meaningful changes that your poetry has gone through like throughout the years? Um, definitely. I think that that's just part of, well, for most people, modern writers, that's part of evolving as a poet. Now that we have constant, you know, we have constant new forms Mm. all the time. We Mm -hmm. have so much to experiment with. If you're, if you're at all sort of engaged with the literary world and with, with reading, I don't mean the literary world, like on Twitter, (laughs) (laughs) you know, what you're reading um, uh, what's available to you, then you will evolve in some way and have those shifts through your life. I think that the biggest one 
that happened for me um, was actually after Meet Me Here at Dawn, which I felt like I needed to have, I needed to rein it in, um, that it was such a rain, that that book had been such uh, like a rangy, wild um, thing to be carrying around. And when it was published, I was like, okay, good. Now, like, let me find something to hold on to. <laughs> mm. Some sort of grounding. So I started writing um, poems that were in form. Mostly, one of them, one of them was sort of a self-made form that I came up with because I was I spent I was at Art Farm as I have often been <laughs> and started reading a was reading a huge Frank Stanford collection. That's all I was reading and was writing these uh, poems that all started with a simile uh, of, of some kind in their first line. So I wrote tons and tons of poems that did that. And then was also writing sonnets. I wrote an insane amount of sonnets. <laughs> all I wrote for like three years was these simile opening poems and sonnets. And it's only now, truly, in the past, I don't know, year that I've been trying to get away from them actually (laughs) not with that much success (laughs) Uh, but you know it could be worse I think it could be worse so did your did the sonnets follow like the the I guess stricter like rhyme scheme format or was it the the I guess the general form of the like 12 sort of body lines and like the ending two line couplet well you know the sonnet for me I, I started writing these sonnets in part because of how I was living um, mm. my I was living in California and I was so I was living partially in California and partially in Nebraska mm-hmm. so I was doing a lot of driving and so my life was still in some ways really unstructured and the only clear structure was California, Nebraska, California, Nebraska, and then my writing became these became these sonnets mm-hmm. because it's such a good container. Mm. And all of the sonnets that I had been writing, they were also almost all the same. They were all called "Driving Through California," "Listening to the Radio," "Driving Through Wyoming," "Listening to the Radio." <laughs> listening to the radio, driving through Colorado. Mm-hmm. And I was taking these slips of what was what I was listening to on the radio and putting them, like overlaying them on the landscape um, that I was moving through. Mm. So there was this, it was this, you know, construction of deliberate, like limitations. Um, and, you know, looking when you're driving, looking is first, like it has, <laughs> it has to be. Yeah. But being, you know, but being contained in this car, being contained in the sonnets, um, made that looking into something else. Like, the, you know, the, and that environment would be totally uh, transformed by um, by listening. Now I'm I'm, I'm still talking about sonnets. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you're talking about driving, but um, I think that there was, I think being like. The idea of being contained and having limitations, mm-hmm. you know, I know it's going to happen. For me, my sonnets always have 10 syllables. They have a volta. They're 14 lines. That's 
my that's the sonnet sonnet ishness that I that I have with mm-hmm. my sonnet. Um, you know, the turn is important. The line, the and I think the syllable count for me also was it was just important to have something that like my life is hectic to say the least. <laughs> my life is totally hectic, so I'm gonna start. I'm gonna have. 10 lines, you know, mm-hmm. 10 syllables, it's gonna, you know, 14 lines. It was just a really good way of, like, holding on to something. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I totally understand that. I mean, I, I, I feel like, I mean, any form of constraint-based writing from, you know, like, only using words that contain a particular vowel to, you know, like the, you have 10 syllables, you know, 14 lines, the, the turn happens in a particular place, you know, like it, it feels like a, a way to like focus your creativity. Cause like when you, it'd be like you're reduced. I mean, I feel like I experienced this when I was a kid, you know, like I, I would have, you know, like a, a set number of action figures that I could, that I could play with. And then it's just a matter of like, well, how many different scenarios or stories can I come up with these same, like, five Batman action figures. Um, <laughs> and I mean, I, and I feel like with, within writing too, it's like you, you give yourself the, like, I don't know. It's like poetic MacGyver. You, you have like a stick, some chewing gum and like a magnifying glass and like, okay, go, go, go make some shit. Go see what you can make with this. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, I love that. Um, that Malay sonnet where she says, I will put chaos into 14 lines. Ooh. And I, I think that that was really good guiding. <laughs> that was, that's exactly, exactly how I felt that, you know, I can put what's happening. I can, uh, and also for me, part of that form became using the voice of the radio um, to, to weave in to these poems. I think that was just as much, part of the form yeah. um, for my, for my understanding of, you know, my understanding of those sonnets. And it was really like, just find them incredibly useful. I've taken, and I've, I've taken some good classes on sonnets actually in this, um, within the pandemic. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I started to say within the pandemic and it was like, Oh God, when will it be? Yeah. When will it be over? Yeah. Um, but Carl Phillips taught this great, great, great seminar um, that was about sonnets, and I think it was called. I think it was just called like "Sonnets of a Transgression" or "A Transgressive Sonnet," something along those lines. Ooh. And it was a fantastic, fantastic course, and we read everything from. Um, I think it was just like a, a three. <laughs> I'm talking about like it was a course, it was like a three-hour, um, uh, you know, sort of online seminar. But mm-hmm. you know, but he brought amazing, you know, amazing things to us that I hadn't read. Uh, Wanda Coleman, Kathy Park Hung, and you know, then the sort of normal stuff that I read the Shakespeare and Claude McKay and mm-hmm. and Sexton. But it was just so. I think it's such a valuable, I think also really that form is like very undertaught um, and undervalued and that like in that, I don't think, 
that sort of modern poetry classroom spend as much time studying scansion and meter as they, I think, should. Hmm. Uh, you know, put an asterisk on that. But it's so useful to, I think it's so useful to, to study those sorts of things and to have a sense of, um, to have a sense of form as a possibility. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I, I definitely feel like, Aside from maybe my like literature classes, I don't know if I've taken a poetry class that has used the sonnet as a form as like a, a teaching implement as in, you know, just the greater sort of like talking about poetry. Um, hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's really and it's actually funny. I've been working or I finished like I started writing that book. That's almost all sonnets that book, a manuscript that is not yet published. Mm -hmm. um, I think I started writing it probably in 2015 at, at Art Farm and then finished around, I don't know, maybe a year, a year and a half ago. But I feel like I've been seeing more and more books of sonnets recently and more mm. talk about sonnets. Maybe it's just because I'm especially aware of them. <laughs> um, more you know over the years but yeah i think that i i kind of do feel that people are turning to form now in a way that they weren't um say in the early 2000s and i think it is because of so much other instability that's happening <laughs> oh yeah i mean i it would not surprise me at all if within the last like if within 2020 like form based or constraint based writing was a really popular um form of of poetry just because it like you said you know it's like there's so much it, mm -hmm. it gives you a way to control things or like to to like focus things or maybe just get a handle on stuff when there's, yeah. there's so much that you you just can't you just keep, like there's no hope of ever getting a handle on, on half of the shit or more, maybe more than half of the stuff that's going on right now. So to have this little like I can exercise a little bit of control over, you know, like this poem is going to be 14 lines long. That's it. <laughs> right. You know? I have control for the day. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes me think about um, or that reminds me of um, Charles Wright's uh, Sestets. Um, but like the first time that I read that, like I read through that collection, it didn't dawn on me that each poem is technically only six lines long um, mm. because of just like the way that he uses indentation and sort of like his, his ingenuity when it comes to like spacing poems on the page. But, you know, like that's a really, to like to have that collection and to, to see that it's like, oh shit, all of these poems are six lines long. And mm. it's just, they run the gamut of just stuff. And, and like images and, and themes and content and it's just like th that weird sort of once you put limitations into a thing or like you have you give yourself a box but then you recognize or you have this realization that the the space inside of the box is infinite mm -hmm. you know, or there is as much space inside of the box as there is outside of the box it's like a really weird you know like tesseract inverting in on itself moment of like oh shit like i can do i can do anything in here 
but yeah. because of the but I guess because of the like the rules or the constraints or the sort of limits or the sort of like the like the scaffolding or framework that you know that this thing has to grow up around it you don't get the sort of um, I guess like choice paralysis that you would outside of that structure when you could do whatever you want and it's like I okay well I'm not going to do anything because that's too much <laughs> it's, it's too many choices <laughs> yeah yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting thing. Like, I think I go towards I, when I've been I've been moving away. I've been trying to move <laughs> away a little bit now in the last um, you know in the last year or so um, from you know from writing sort of exclusively sonnet. And it was funny even after I finished this manuscript, I was like, all right, let me see what other poems I have. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and more sonnets. If I am big. Uh, <laughs> had, what happened? Um, no, it's, well, I, I guess, you know, I was also, I, when I had stopped, when I, when I started to write all these sonnets, I'd been working on, like, a very unwieldy project, which I've been writing for 10 years, which is a book about water. Um, Ooh. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, what what is it? Drowning, not waving. Drowning, not waving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I it's yeah, and that is that's actually not as much poetry as it is what I describe it as some sort of kaleidoscopic nonfiction lyric memoir Ooh. mess, but. Um, but that has, that has, you know, I've given myself there a, a form as well, which is that they're all, all of these sections, so the book is composed of like about a million sections that all are two pages and they all have something, the titles of those sections all have, you know, something to do with water. So there'll be okay. anchor and aquifer and bycatch and boat and so on and so on and so forth all the way down but um it's been but it's fair prose is so unwieldy wow i forget why i started talking about that Uh uh-oh this is the the hazards of podcasting (laughs) well you were saying that in in i guess um in contrast to the sonnets which are very you know like structured and sort of ordered that this thing is really unwieldy and Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, oh, what I was going to say was, was one of the things that I ran into, that I have run into in writing about, in, in writing this book, is that it's something that um, I heard Brenda Hillman say at a, a talk, a talk once that she gave on, um, on drought. I think it was part of, it was at a AWP at some point, there were a couple of different um, talks about water. But this, this idea that like, that, that, eco-poet, that I think Ecopoetics, capital E, has, which is, that I understand it as, sort of says, like, okay, our nature is, is out of order. It's out of whack. It's not, like, nature is, to put it mildly, not okay. Mm-hmm. So our expression of it cannot be as well. It has to embody um, something. I remember, I think the, the line that stuck out to me was, mm, uh, oh, weather taught you to write funny when it stops being wrecked, we'll write normally. 
which is so hard for me because as a person writing about, you know, the climate crisis and animal cruelty and, and, and all of these, well, tons of things that are, um, that are difficult to write about, you know, writing about, for example, in, in one of the sections is called SeaWorld and writing about, um, an orca calf being taken from, um, taken from her mother and the mother laying for days at the bottom of this tank in SeaWorld, echolocating, trying to, you know, in a, in a tank that's not big enough for her by, by a million, by a million, um, sitting at the bottom of this tank and echolocating, trying to find her child, which Jesus. is just like, it's so fucking, oh, can I swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah, please, go ahead. By all means. Okay. So fucking devastating. Like, how can you write about that in a straightforward way? Right. But if I want it to be understood by the person who is reading, if I want the largest possible audience to understand that, I have to write it in the most clear language that I have. Like, right. I can't, I feel like I can't afford to have that chaos and grief be embodied by the language because then it's just, then I would just be writing a full page of, of O's that represented the fracture of, you know, echolocation bouncing off walls where nothing else was. And it would be too much. It would be, I would lose my audience essentially. Yeah. And lose the potential of like, of, of, connecting of connecting that as being more than just like a story um versus something that can people can do something about yeah i think the more the more abstract it gets the harder it is to take responsibility oh yeah and that's like you bring up a point that i've never really thought about the the I mean, thinking about like the the presentation of things, like why is something a poem as opposed to like a prose poem, opposed to like a flash mm -hmm. lyric essay, you know, whatever, as opposed to you know like a um, like a performance piece or music, something that is devoid of of language. Um, but I, like you bring up a point of like. How do you, or I guess, like, where is the where is the line, and on, on how do you determine, like, what is the appropriate format for whatever it is that you're trying to convey? Like, in, in that for that that um, story with the orca, is it the story and the impact of knowing like what's going on is the important thing? Is it the emotional impact of just experiencing that grief and that loss and that confusion and you know, like depending upon which one of those things is whatever it is that or depending upon which of those things is what you want to convey, then determining like what is the most effective means of conveyance for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm sure that there could be a very interesting, you know, short story about that, a very interesting like novel about that, a very interesting like painting or, like oh my god like experimental sound project oh, about that there's yeah. so many different ways of articulating uh you know translating that into into art and it does depend like i don't want to say who are you making this for but like you said what do you want 
what do you want to happen with it? Right. Yeah. Um, and certainly there, are, I think certainly there are poems that have great, you know, great influence upon people's actions. I would like to think, <laughs> I would like to think, but you know, but maybe not. I mean, I don't know anybody who ever stopped mowing their lawn because they, they read that Philip Larkin poem, the mower about running over the hedgehog and thought, Oh, suddenly <laughs> I'm never going to mow my lawn again. <laughs> right. Like that would be great if they did, because yeah. you don't really need to mow your lawn. That's a whole other story. But you know, it's also the question of like, okay, if that were, if if that moment of of um, you know about the hedgehog were a short essay, like would that have been as effective? Like, uh, I don't know. It's a pretty flawless poem. So right, yeah. But I mean, I also feel like you unfortunately have to take into account like the place that poetry has currently, like in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because like there are, I know that there are other countries and other cultures in which poetry occupies a very very different space and like poets also occupy a very very different space than what they do in the united states um and you know like the the efficacy of a poem in the in the u.s or in american culture circles you know greater cultural impact whatever you know may be may and probably will be significantly different than, you know, like a, a poem in like Argentinian culture or even like Spanish, you know, like in, in the country of Spain. Um, yeah, that's, that's also a really like tough thing to like, that if, if the best way to convey a thing is a poem, the, like looking at the, the sort of, the influence and like maybe not the landscape of poetry in in the u.s because i I feel like that in and of itself is pretty fertile and pretty vibrant but just the sort of like influence that poetry has on things outside of like poetic literary circles um, Mm -hmm. is you know like it's it doesn't feel like it's much um so you know like if 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 a poem is the most effective means to convey whatever it is that you're trying to convey it feels like the like initially right out the gate like things are stacked way <laughs> fucking against you um, <laughs> yeah i think it i think it can feel that way i mean i you know i'm teaching these classes now the te- the, the types of classes that i like to teach the most are mixed classes where people come to them who are who don't think of themselves necessarily um or at least part of the class doesn't think of themselves as quote-unquote poets Mm, but maybe wrote poetry when they were young and never showed anybody um and now they're coming to it out of curiosity Mm -hmm. or they just are you know they love to read poetry or they read they read poetry when it shows up in the local newspaper, um, they have a curiosity about it, but are not coming to it with any particular expectation mm-hmm. or um, anxiety. But I think people who sometimes think of themselves as poets <laughs> and do poetry classes with, and, and um, it's been it's been really it's been so uh, 
refreshing to teach people who don't necessarily think of themselves as poets to see them discover poetry in different ways Mm -hmm. and also i don't know there's this like closed there's this gatekeeper attitude of like oh well i can't write a poem we're really Mm -hmm. you know you can if you say i'm gonna write a poem you write a you can write a poem and people do it it's so funny too because people do it all the time without thinking of themselves as ever having written poems like people will write poems to their significant others in a birthday card but then look at you know look at a poem in a newspaper and think like oh I could never write a poem it's like you just did right two weeks ago yeah <laughs> it's not different it's, yeah. it's it's not different at all there's and I don't know it's a it's a real tragedy that this idea of that this idea of the arts the capital A arts are inaccessible to to yeah. others and that's a function of capitalism and that's a whole different. <laughs> a whole different road yeah well i mean and even within that like it feels like poetry occupies this really weird esoteric space of on the one hand looking at a a poem and being and seeing it as like this really frivolous you know like oh you spent a month writing a stanza you know like the, the the amount of i guess like behind the scenes or like um back end work versus what is seen or what is produced from that work um on the one hand you know can seem frivolous or unimportant or like a waste of time and then on the other hand can be this really esoteric like well i don't i don't know how to that that's it's like i don't i don't get poetry i don't understand i I can never like get it um because there's there's a um a i'm in i'm in a writing group with some friends from my um my mfa program um and it's a pretty uh, I guess it's like it leans poet heavy, but um, <laughs> the there are two writers that do poetry and like nonfiction, like lyric essays. Um, mm-hmm. And one of the nonfiction like essayists um, has always kind of wanted to dabble into poetry, but doesn't feel qualified enough. And sometimes even in responding to the poems that are brought to the group, we'll still sort of couch some of their responses or some of their suggestions or critiques or whatever as like you know i don't i don't really know i don't have a whole lot of experience talking about poetry um and i'm like if you if you have lived a life that has made you feel deeply about things Mm -hmm. you're at least in regards to like the poetry that i gravitate the most towards like you're qualified to respond to poetry yeah yeah like you know Sounds, sounds give us feelings. So if you, yeah. can, you know, if we can think about if you know breaking it down in a class of, of um, people who are new to like learning about crap, just even talking about things on a sound level, mm-hmm. that's actually where I start to see a lot of like eye eyes widening for the first time. We talk about like, oh, you know. How, I mean, how is sound moving through the emotions of this? How is it creating mm-hmm. um, a you know tone of this poem? That really does change. Uh, you know, when you break it down to the just on a sound pre-language basis. You know, um, I used to talk about like before um, you know written language, people had sounds that mm-hmm. they made to one another that meant different things. Before modern society, like the sound that the the Neanderthal person made across the valley to the other Neanderthal person was 
a different sound if they found a blackberry bush versus if they were seeing a giant sloth. Like, mm-hmm. it's a different tone and yeah. it tells you something different. It's the same thing in a poem. Yeah. The sounds tell you differences of, of emotion and of, like, you know, we have the benefit, too, on the page of, um, you know, line breaks and of mm-hmm. white space and of punctuation and all of those things, which sometimes couldn't go real haywire, but um, I love all that little minutiae and whatnot. <laughs> it's so funny. People are... I. I I hope one day I can just teach a class. I love to teach a class just about M dashes. Just <laughs> throw, throw an M dash in there, see what happens. Oh, I love a good M dash. <laughs> I do. Too. I, I really. So one of my. I think I've pulled this off. Maybe I think I've pulled off each of these things once successfully in a, in a, like respective poems. Um, <laughs> having an M dash and then not like not closing it by the time the poem finishes. <laughs> Yeah. And ending ending a poem on an M dash. <laughs> Dramatic. Oh god, that's it's like when you when you can work it out and having that just that moment of just fracture at the very end of a poem. It's like, oh, I love it. You know, the, I feel like that the the um the master of syntax right now it to me is Carl Phillips. Like just does it in such an incredible um incredible incredible way i don't know if you're too familiar um funnily enough one of the uh fellow poets although poet slash essayist um in my writing group actually like a week ago sent me two carl phillips poems um because he was he was texting me and he was like hey i don't know if you know this guy but you should check out his poems because they're amazing and i was like yeah sure send them my way um, I think he actually talked. I have I have some friends that work at the um, like the big Baltimore Library, um, mm-hmm. and I think Carl Phillips actually had a like did a talk. I think last week maybe. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Um, That's great. Yeah. So the fact that that he has popped up so far like three times in my life definitely means that I should probably throw some attention at at him and his poetry. Oh, I think that just the. Um... Like the lyricism and the deep investigations that um, you know that he does, and how syntax is, you know, I think often like his his syntax is a tool of like doubt and mm. of, I don't know how to like different ways of directing of directing doubt is maybe I'll. <laughs> Is maybe how to say it. Okay. Uh, yeah, unmistakable. Definitely go, go find his work. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I just I bought some stuff recently off of Amazon, and I was looking around on my wish list of other like poetry books or things to add. I should have fuck. I should have been look, keep my eye out for his stuff. Yeah, yeah, definitely, mm. definitely, really wonderful. I want also to let me think. I went just yesterday to. Not just yesterday. It's so hard. Like, the days just really do. Oh, I know. Oh, my God. They just totally, like, peel together in a really unpleasant way sometimes. Yeah, it's like it's like a, a, a wad, like, wet wads of paper just sort of, like, getting mushed into each other. I know. It's so crazy. But I went, I went to this talk that I think now is available on Poets.org. Um, 
YouTube, but it was the, these two uh, climate scientists, um, I think, were named um, Ayanna Johnson and Catherine um, Wilkinson, made the, uh, are, created this anthology called All We Can Save, which is like essays and poems um, from different um, women, actually, all uh, women writers who are involved in some way, thinking either scientists or teenagers or whatever, thinking about um, you know the climate movement. So their their book is like it's. I just ordered it. It looks incredible. But um, Ellen Bates and Camille Dungy were were reading, and they were so good. And Ellen Bates was saying. She was just talking about like it, you know, being in the pandemic and saying, <laughs> she said, it's ter- it's terrible how much you have to care and, you know, to just to, to love so much in these perilous times. She was talking about like, and I just thought about that for, for the next like 72 hours. Um, she was talking about her, her son is going to have a baby, you know, her son's um, wife is going to have a baby soon and just being so like, excited and terrified for the life of this new child yeah. in in this moment of like uh so much uncertainty but you know what can you do but celebrate it also I mean. right yeah that's it's it's such a weird like there's a, a number of my friends have had kids recently um mm. and it's just like like I'm so like like I'm so thrilled for them that they have this addition in their life, and you know like there's this there's this like next generation that's that's out there that's grown up now, um, but like I can't I, I don't know if it's because this is sort of a driving factor of why I never really want to have kids, but just the sort of like the ethics or the morality of like having a child now right. when. Like, I don't know if I could guarantee that their life is going to be better than mine, like, 30 years from now. Yeah. You know, and, like, that's that's a devastating thought to think, like, I don't, like, is is Earth going to be livable in, like, 50 years? Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm not having children. Like, the idea, I am very, I love the children that are here. Yes. But I, I would not be contributing. Yes. <laughs> and... It's just it in in part of that is that I would have to totally redirect the energy uh, <laughs> finances <laughs> uh, of my life to raise a child in the way that I would want to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that's a personal choice. Like the way that I would specifically want to raise a child would take a type of money that I do not have. Yes, and that's that's just the fact the fact of personal choice for me. But, um, yeah, it is a really, it is a really scary, it is a really scary thing. I have, I'm so lucky to have, um, my sister got married a couple years ago, uh, to a guy who has these two great kids. So I get to be, um, I got two little step, a step niece and step nephew. And it's been a total joy to, you know, put poetry uh, into their lives a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just like such a total pleasure. And I think that because I think in part because of not having children that and knowing that I'm not going to have children, that's been part of my interest, my continuing interest in 
like making sure that I'm available to mentor or talk to or whatever people, young people who are interested in writing. Oh yeah, definitely. It feels maybe even more important. <laughs> so, oh yeah. I won't be, you know, reciting Robert Frost poems at my own little <laughs> creature, creatures of my own. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's a really, you know, like, like children among the, the myriad other things that they are, are, you know, like your lineage. It's like your, your heritage. It's, it's your, like, you're in, like, more so than I feel like in, in maybe any other way, like they, they are the results of your direct impact. Um, right. And they they will bear the marks of that, either beneficial or not beneficially, you know, like throughout their life. And I I definitely can see that being a like in lieu of like you said having having a creature of your own, being able to to dispense that sort of you know like the the knowledge and the experience that you have built up throughout your life to be able to to find a use for that into the or like pour it in I maybe like Homeric terms like pour it into the vessels of of the, the people that you're mentoring or the um, you know like the relationships that you're building up with the the teen poet and younger generations um, yeah and you know there's a bunch of kids who live at this co-op where I am who are just constantly outside they're actually like um they're kind of like the lost boys or something. We have all this land outside, uh, so they're they're constantly outside, running around. And I don't think they go to school because of you know pandemic. And actually, I don't know if they went to school either. I live in sort of a hippie place, ish. But <laughs> they um, so they run around all the time, and sometimes they leave stuff outside my my door for them, like stickers. I sort of treat them like stray cats. Um, which they're very, they're very into, I, I think. But, there's, but you know, I've given them some books and little things. Mm-hmm. And I feel very available, like, as a creative person, that I do have the responsibility to pass, um, you know, music and wonder and song. I mean, song in terms of poetry on to, like whatever little beings are around <laughs> and they're not going to be mine. So I just have to be like on the street, like, Hey kid, you want a chat book? <laughs> oh my God. That would be, that would be amazing to encounter somebody in a big trench coat and like, Hey, <laughs> Hey. And they just open it up and it's just like first edition, like handbound chat books. <laughs> right. I've got a, uh, you know, some uh, nice first edition leaves the grass here, <laughs> just for you, just for you. I got that that letterpress Jane Hirschfield that was published three years ago. <laughs> it's really. I was going to say, oh, I should have said, you know, in terms of lineage, in terms of uh, forebears, like Walt Whitman is such a huge, mm. um, a huge, huge figure for me, and mm-hmm. actually really shows up a lot in the in the sonnets that I've been writing as a, as a guide because I had in my car, which I think I spent like, I mean, an, an insane amount of time in while doing my travel. 
um, I had this recording of James Earl Jones in like 1972 at the 92Y reading selections from Song of Myself. Holy shit, that's like peak James Earl Jones. It is incredible. You can find it on SoundCloud. Oh, and like wow. hearing James Earl Jones say, urge and urge and urge always the procreant urge of the world <laughs> out of the dimness i mean it's fucking incredible it's so good and just driving on these like 14 hour drives i would like turn it up really high and be like hearing this whitman while driving through call like the mountains in colorado hearing whitman like in the middle of the night in arizona it was so so that's cool and i think incredible. everybody should put it in their car <laughs> I, I don't know if I could listen to that without visualizing Darth Vader re- reciting <laughs> Walt Whitman. You'll, you'll get over it. <laughs> but I mean, it, that in and of itself is a pretty wonderful, like once he once like in a weird sort of pocket dimension where he and Luke finally like reconnect, like Luke, <laughs> Luke's going to sleep and then Darth Vader's just reading him some Walt Whitman to just kind of like usher him off into unconsciousness. <laughs> Luke, I contain multitudes. <laughs> <laughs> and Luke's like, no, it's not true. It's impossible. <laughs> it's really, there's something about, I've, I've been meaning to do, to do this again. Well, just for, I try to do it in my class, actually, is to always have um, recordings of poets. Recordings of, you know, I get tired. I bring it to this class that I'm teaching, which is all about place, really, um, but it's to try to have my class hear, you know, the poets reading in their original mm. voice, you know, poem, which is not something that I was really into as a younger person. But now I'm very, I'm very into. I'm not sure what shifted. I mean, poets can be terrible readers. I think I'm oh, a terrible yeah. reader if I don't work. Actually, I I think that I'm a pretty lackluster reader of my own stuff as well. Well, it's just that. For so many of my poems, I want my ideal. I mean, poetry, like, was my, like, accompanied me and always accompanies me. Mm-hmm. And so to, to have that private experience, especially with uh, experiences of grief or loss or loneliness, like, when I can sit down and read a poem and see myself reflected in it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's how I want to, ex- that, you know, <laughs> I would love to have a reading where I just passed out, you know, 15 pages and everyone could read quietly to themselves. You know, I have had um, like literally the exact same thought um, because like I, <laughs> I find when, unless it's a really captivating read, like Hirschfeld to me, or even Ann Carson, I saw was able to, fortunate enough to catch both of them at AWP. Um, mm. Like they are amazingly entrancing when they, when they read. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. like I find that a lot of other readers um, like other readings that I go to and stuff, but like the thing that one of the things that I value the most about poetry is the ability to, to step into the experience that the poet is is like offering to me. Mm-hmm. And when I hear poets read their work, it feels like the door to that invitation is being closed, or at least being like shut a certain way. So I really have to like squeeze myself into that space um, mm-hmm. when. It, whereas when it's just on the page, because I can I can internalize the the words and the language, and I can 
hang out with lines for as long as I want to hang out with them for, or I can take mm -hmm. pauses to just sort of like let things sink in. It's mm -hmm. much easier for me to be able to step into those spaces. And I 100% write for the page. Like I want people to have that experience when they read my poetry. Um, yeah, so I've, I've often thought about how to, how to effectively have a reading in which I don't actually read. <laughs> yeah, my, my ideal. You know, actually, I, this is the great, I don't know if he knows it, but one of the, the great gifts that uh, Terrence, uh, Terrence Hayes gave me, has given me, is that I was at a reading once, like many years ago, before I really knew him, that he happened to be at, and I, so I didn't, I didn't really know him, or I didn't know him at all at that point, and I was like, ooh, Terrence Hayes sitting up there, ooh, and I watched him have his head sort of down the whole, for the whole reading, and not really look up at the readers at all. He wasn't reading, he wasn't part of, um, part of the, the um lineup for that night mm -hmm. i was like oh i don't have to look at them yeah, <laughs> I I, when, i'm not gonna look at them i'm just gonna take notes yeah when i when i go to readings most of the time i will listen to things with my eyes closed mm -hmm. um to sort of i guess in a way to like sensory like deprecate or um whatever like to to eliminate some of the senses that i have so i can just like be in the space um, but I've actually, uh, towards the, I guess, like in 2019, 2018 or so, um, before uh, readings were not a thing you could do anymore, um, I would actually write, like I would try to write a response poem mm. in the moment. Um, for, because for whatever reason, it allowed me to like pay attention to what they were saying um, mm -hmm. and to like to really absorb the things and allow myself to get caught on like certain words or certain lines or an image or something and being able to, to like feed that immediately back into my own writing or my own response really allowed me to stay like present in a way that I haven't really experienced before in readings. Mm, um, yeah. Nice. Yeah. I've definitely, I've, well, the, the practice has gotten me a little a little bit in trouble now because for readings that I that, that I am a part of, then <laughs> I'm just like have my head down and I'm taking notes, and then suddenly the you know the host is saying, "Oh, Sophie Clark, blah blah blah." And I'm like, "Oh shit!" Like I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> like get my poems together now. Like what, what am I reading? Oh my god! But it's a it's a great way of of um you know. Deflate of ego deflation when you're when you're gonna read, and it's a great way of you know of engagement when you're not. I mean, I'm yeah. so I'm so grateful for that day. I saw Terrence. I was like, oh my god, <laughs> I don't have to look. I don't have to look at them. Perfect. Yeah. Fuck. I might if I'm ever lucky lucky enough to be invited to another reading. I think when I go up, if I haven't figured out a way to, to do just a silent reading, which I think. I think music would need to be a part of somehow because mm -hmm. I feel like there's a there's a like a space that needs to be created to give people the allowance to be able to read silently like mm. next to someone else. I, I think I feel in order for that to be like really effective, I think that there need to be something something going on to occupy the sort of like higher liminal space so that people can kind of just lose themselves into that. But if I haven't figured that out yet, I might just ask everyone to like close their eyes and not look at me when I read. <laughs> right. 
Yeah, that would be great. Because <laughs> then I wouldn't have to make eye contact. I wouldn't have to look up and like be engaging from the page. I could just be like I could be in my own space, and everyone else is in their own space. I know, I know. That also the anecdotes. Oh, I got to tell an anecdote before <sighs> this next poem. Oh my god. I I am so terrible. I I feel like <laughs> I can be I can be engaging on a one on one like person basis but in front of like 20 people trying to be engaged i'm 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 so bad at that i'm terrible (laughs) it feels so like stiff and i feel so uncomfortable i'm like i don't i don't know what i should be telling you about thing am i oversharing i'm probably oversharing right now (laughs) i think there's this like cognitive dissonance because as a as just like a person moving through the world in an everyday way, I'm sort of goofy. And then my poems are not, <laughs> not goofy. Yeah. So maintaining some sort of like coherence is hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I would definitely lean on humor, but all, most of my poems are like sad in, in some way. I'm like, I don't want to give people fucking like, whiplash going from like oh yeah i'm joking about this thing and now you're gonna feel sad about me stepping on accidentally stepping on two spiders on a walk here you go no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know well i know that's what happens that's what happens there's not that much to do about it but yeah <sighs> process follow process yeah um so i i'm going to ask you the final two questions that i ask um all of my guests um, the first one is, if you have the vocabulary for it, what is your internal landscape like? Oh, no. <laughs> I told you I was going to ask this question. You did. Um, God, I don't know. My internal landscape? Um... So it can, it can be a physical landscape. It can be, like, I, there was one person, um, one of my close friends that I talked to, uh, her internal landscape is like, red and orange colored frosting that's just kind of swirling around um (laughs) it can also not be a a static image um mine has been pretty consistent since when i like figured out what it was but i've I've had guests that like on a given day it's a thing and on any other given day it's something totally different but oh i don't know it's probably um, it's probably the landscape of uh, of Nebraska, <laughs> of um, of Art Farm, just fields and fields for miles, and not much else. <laughs> it's like I weirdly enough, I had kind of a feeling that that's what you were going to say, <laughs> yeah. which is like. Well, yeah. Like most of the other guests that I've had on, I've had no, like, absolutely no idea what they, like, what they were going to to have as an answer for this. But for whatever reason, like, I don't. So the the one that I, I guess, the landscape that I discovered inside of me feels like, um, like Great Plains type. You know, just big open vastness with not a ton. Like maybe some scrub trees, maybe some hills, maybe a stream, but it's just mm. like open landscape and nothing. Mm-hmm. And when I went to Art Farm, so like I've I've never been to like Wyoming or South Dakota or anything to to have mm. experienced this. But when I was at Art Farm for those two weeks, um, that was the 
closest I have felt to like getting to a physical landscape that felt like what I felt like on the inside. Mm-hmm. Um, which was just a really amazing experience to just be out there in this, like you said, just this vastness and this openness and like the thing that occupies the most space other than just the flatness is the sky. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've spent probably, I mean, like in total, I think I've spent a year over, over a year there, maybe 15 months or something um, in that landscape. Yeah. And just, and, and living in a place where when it's dark, it's dark. Oh yeah. Is uh, is but you know that's where I, w- I would like to be able to live in that kind of space all all the time where you're run by the weather and mm-hmm. you wake up with the sun mm-hmm. and it's like and there's no I remember coming back once from there was a time when I came back from Nebraska. Uh, to Los Angeles and I was so overwhelmed not by not necessarily by by the people but by the the language that was everywhere 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 mm. billboards everywhere um the pure the the visual information of language always coming at me it felt like I, was, I gotta get out of here wow it was way, way, way too much. Yeah, just having, um, living in a space where what's coming at me is like sky and wind and mm-hmm. like, you know, animals and dirt. It, that's, I'll just take that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, yeah, that's something that like being like taking, you know, like not extensive hikes, but at least some hikes far enough away that you don't really hear traffic and the occasional plane um you get like i always i always thought that the like the the woods or the forest or whatever was quiet but Mm -hmm. like if you get out like deep enough in it it's like pretty fucking cacophonous you have like the wind (laughs) you have birds you just have shit you know like things moving around in the, the leaves and it can get kind of like it's not super super quiet but most of the sounds there are like they feel like they're rounded or like the edges feel like they're broken a little bit so they're Mm -hmm. they're not so sharp um and that's something like i i live um where i'm living right now is like next to a a pretty busy and active road so there's like ambulances and fire trucks and cop cars Mm -hmm. and just you know like people on their horns and big trucks and just like constant noise happen. I mean, I, some of it will probably get picked up on my microphone because I'm literally by my window and there's just people, you know, driving back and forth. Um, but it feels like so many urban or like, maybe not even urban, but just like sounds that are associated with, with humanity are sharp and piercing in a way mm-hmm. that like really get into your bones. Um, mm-hmm. in a like in a way for me that feels like intrusive and just like, Oh God, I'm like, I'm in pain by this. Um, and that was really like when I was in, uh, when I was at our firm, that was a really amazing thing to, to like 
to have the sort of like silence at first as your as your ears are getting used to the fact that there's not these really loud glaring things that need your attention and then it just opens up to like oh shit there's like crickets <laughs> happening all around me and that's pretty fucking loud and like the wind and all of these like really these sounds that like once your ear can recover from the the assault in cities or just around other people you you start experiencing that and that was like that level of expansionness was almost as arresting as just seeing like so many fucking stars in the sky mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah you know i think there is something really that i love about that i love in nebraska um well it taught me i think living in nebraska taught me that i did well i don't know whenever you're living somewhere you kind of get to know like the language of that space and how mm-hmm. the you know the particular creaks of the house and what it means if someone's going up the stairs or down the stairs. I grew up in a very creaky house <laughs> that you know you can tell. Oh, okay, someone's coming down for the third. You know, I know the weight on that step is the weight of my mother's footstep. And mm-hmm. um, but in Nebraska, getting to know like okay, that particular Russell is a mouse Russell, and that particular Russell is a bat Russell, mm-hmm. and there's you know. There's such a pleasure in also being in being in tune to what sounds mean instead of being pushed pushed out by them. Like recognizing yourself as a part of that yeah. system, where I think in an urban environment you're kind of not even aware of making a sound. <laughs> yeah. Where in Nebraska, I'm always very very aware of what you know of myself in the landscape of myself is creating a difference um, in the landscape that I was moving through. And it's just made me more, I think it makes me more conscious in a, in a daily way, even though we're, you know, even I've just taken that into the other spaces where I've lived since then of being aware, like how my, (laughs) my sound is, is impacting, (laughs) you know, my spaces. (laughs) I have a, I have, I was living with, um, a musician friend, I live with a musician friend sometimes, or I used to live with him sometimes um, in Northern California, who uh, I I have, one of the other things my father gave me is a constant humming. I hum constantly, <laughs> or and, and it makes other people, well, it made this musician crazy, where he would be like, either sing or don't make noise. <laughs> sing or don't sing. Thing or not. None of this humming, this humming is just too much. But, you know, I think too, I think also like being a dancer, like having that, you know, my, my like long history of dance, being it, that was also felt like really embraced in Nebraska. Mm. Uh, too, like, you know, we're like building stuff all day, moving tin from one pile to another without knowing exactly why. Um, like, that sort of physicality also really like I feel physically more myself in Nebraska than than anywhere else yeah so that's part of the internal reflection as well yeah I mean I I feel like I mean I I I work at a um a cabinet shop so I'm I'm pretty Mm. I'm pretty active most of the, the day but it I feel like having that sort of I mean I wasn't was I doing that? Yeah, I guess I was doing that 
um, when I went to Art Farm, but I was like, I think I was maybe my first year or so there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it feels like a in a way or a similar way that like walking meditation or yoga is a is a means of of centering yourself and like being present in your body of just like doing those physical things and and recognizing like oh this is what this muscle does or that's like oh this is what i use this muscle for Mm -hmm. um and just being yeah i guess like in when you have when you don't have all these other distractions and all these other things that that force you or force themselves into your attention you can kind of let your attention sort of like it'd be like like blurring your eyes or sort of like unfocusing your eyes you can kind of just let it melt out into yourself and into the the landscape and it it becomes a like when i guess when you when you don't have so many things agonizing you for attention you can allow yourself to sort of just expand out Mm -hmm. in a way that is not like that won't cause you harm or won't cause your um I don't know, like your internal bandwidth to be eaten up immediately. You know, because there's not like, oh, do I have to pay attention to this sound? It's like, oh, it's it's a rustle in the grass. It's like, okay, it, whatever. It's, you know, it's nothing that really requires a whole lot of my attention. It can just be this thing that exists out there. Yeah, yeah. It's a really, it's something that I, that I miss a lot is being, um, you know, when... For, for me, like being in Nebraska, you know, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a, a person who grew up being a, being a farmhand or anything. So I still, there's still a lot of romanticism <laughs> of, of, for, for me, of, of those spaces, which is a, you know, a, a privileged position to, to have. But like, I just, I worked out in this, the, the studio that I had was way out. Um, you know, if you remember the thinking hut, which oh, yeah. is sort of, Mm-hmm. Yeah, the furthest away that you can get from, from everybody <laughs> while still being, and also because of where it's situated, you know, you can see if someone's coming mm-hmm. um, and sort of say, like, don't actually, it, it became a thing where nobody came out. Like, if I was <laughs> out there, nope, people knew, you know, Sophie's out there, don't go out there. <laughs> um, but I had, I had a relationship with these mice who were in my studio to the point that at some point uh, I looked in the little, you know, in, in the walls and saw like, oh, they have like pieces of my hair in their nest, in their nests. And wow. like, I really like just appreciated being a part of the land in a way, uh, in, in a way out there that I, that I could not have, uh, could not have predicted whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck, man. I'm... Have you have you gone back? Do you think you'll go back? I don't know. I think I I would like to. Like it at for a while it was it was one of those experiences that that I was like I'm I'm glad that I had this experience mm-hmm. and I'm grateful for it. I got a chapbook out of it, which is one of the like one of the most favorite or one of my favorite things that I've ever written. Mm. Um cuz I I when I went out there I was like I'm going to write a poem a day. Um, and I did that and I wrote some like haiku sort of interstitially between those poems. And then that, that turned into a, a chapbook that I'm really, really proud of. Nice. Um, so for a while I was like, yeah, I don't know if I, if I would want to have that experience again, but I think now, um, with having enough time to sort of like sit and reflect on the time that I spent there and 
the things of like, you know, I, I definitely, when I was there, stayed within a sort of, um, I guess, like self-imposed limitation that I didn't really, I didn't realize that it was that like a self-imposed limitation until like a year or two later. I was like, oh shit, I could have done so much more when I was there. Um, that I think now, like if I had the opportunity to, um, I think I would, I think I would, I think I would give it another shot. Um, yeah, there's so, you know, there's so much, so much is different there. I mean, it changes every year. One of the things that I love the most is that um, I would be like, Ed, there's a chicken coop out there that looks, that is like in a thicket behind a fence that's totally overgrown that no one's touched. Can I um, make that into a studio? <laughs> You'd be like, sure. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this, I mean, literally a chicken coop that like a broke, broke ass, like, completely rotting through a chicken coop is now a really nice studio because I decided to do it. And that's just like the art farm is so empowering. I just never, I've never felt, um, I don't think I've ever felt quite as creative physically and, uh, you know, intellectually as, as being out there just because anything, it does really feel like anything is possible. If you can imagine it, you can, you can do it there. And that's why so many visual artists, love it out there i cannot tell you how many times i've seen people dig holes just because they could <laughs> well that makes me think like uh colin was just starting on his like massive like excavation thing as i was leaving um so yeah i mean i i totally <laughs> i totally get the 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 wanting to just dig holes out there yes well i mean colin is is probably it was hugely, hugely influential to the to the work that I did out there. I mean, just deeply influential. Actually, the book is going to be dedicated to him when it eventually does. You know, when it when it comes out somewhere. Yeah. Because I would see him where he was working. His workspace was across the field. Was uh, I don't know how I can't really measure it in my head, but far enough away that I couldn't see all of the features on his face, but I could still see what he was doing from yeah. my studio. So we'd go across the land and say like, Oh, what's that tool? And he'd say, that's a caliper. I'd be like, caliper. Okay. Gotta go. And then I'd go back to my studio and my caliper. <laughs> so all of tons of the language that he was using. That's what I love about art farm too. Um, you know, I was always way more attracted to spending time with people who weren't poets, in part because of the way that they think and talk about their own work has language that I don't have. Oh, like, yeah, so, totally. You know, tons and tons of Collins' language um, became the language that is now um, in the poems that I that I wrote for that book. Yeah, the the two people that I connected with the most most when I was there was a like a musician like interdisciplinary like um i guess like performance artist and a, a fabrics <laughs> artist nice uh, nice yeah i'm i mean i have long long lasting friendships i mean i think i talk to on a daily basis to one or two people almost on a daily basis from <laughs> from art farm it's just been like one of the most uh, perhaps like the formative um I don't know, one of the most important and formative experiences, creative experiences of my life. Yeah. Definitely. 
definitely. <laughs> That's so funny also that you could say Colin and that no was. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I feel like, because I don't know, I think I was, there was somebody that was there longer term that I would like check up with occasionally and just see how like Colin's, because I think that like he just <laughs> stayed there. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, and would, would just like kind of get a, a sense of like, oh, it's like, well, how's Colin's project were going it's like oh he's still he's still out there I'm like okay <laughs> he's still in the hole <laughs> <laughs> it's done it's beautiful i mean yeah, i, I really i would love it. to go back and see it i mean you can see i i should send you some pictures or you know connect on connect you to it on instagram it's incredible what he did was truly i mean it's he made a well tower like built a well it took like five years <laughs> but he he did it he was and he it was this funny through line of like you know people would come for two weeks or two you know two months or one month and he'd be like i'm still here and colin's still here yeah. <laughs> we were here last year there was actually a time i think almost a month where it was just colin and i and ed at the farm <laughs> 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 it was a good month it was oh, a good month that's great yeah. Um, okay, so my last question for you is, okay. do you have a question for me? Oh, uh, do I have a question for you? Yeah. Um, it can be, it can be on anything. Like no, no topic is off, uh, is off bounds, out of bounds, whatever. Just if you have a question that you would like to ask me, this is, you're more than welcome to. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of, I was surprised when you contacted me and I was like, how did you find me? <laughs> I guess I know that it was Art Farm, but um, uh, what, what question do I have? I don't know. I don't know. How, how you doing? Um, <laughs> you doing okay? <laughs> I'm doing okay, I think. Like, during, um, towards the end of December and then a lot through January, I've, I've been feeling sort of like vacant inside. Mm -hmm. um, so like if, if my internal landscape is typically the, like the Great Plains, just like big open, big sky country, mm -hmm. um, for the last maybe month and a half or so, it's felt like it's just been like snow blind in there. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm still trying to like chase down the, potential like number of reasons of why I've been feeling that way. But I think that I've, I've been able to like pinpoint a couple of things and I'm doing my best to like change those habits or create new habits. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been feeling better. I mean, maybe not as connected to myself as I would like to feel, but like, I, I feel like I'm getting there. Um, I think a, a big component of that was just like not, like not really writing. Like I wrote maybe two or three poems in all of 2020, um, and like a handful of haiku, um, and that's just been that's been really really devastating. I think because I I know that I've 2020 I've developed a tendency to lean on things that are distractions. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, like, I don't. I don't really know how to deal with because on the one hand, I think that I kind of need it because I like, you know, there's just so much shit happening. And like, I, I just, my internal bandwidth is so low so much of the time. Yeah. Um, 
but on the other hand, like I don't know, you know, like that that thin line between when crutches become like addictions or like unhealthy habits. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that I'm probably sort of like maybe skirting that line right now. Mm. Um, and I also like I haven't been really been reading poetry or really anything aside from like manuscripts um, mm. that I've been editing for the press. Um, so like reading for my own enjoyment or just reading for my own, I guess, like um, recharging. Yeah. Um, so I like it's I'm grateful that I've been able to sort of pinpoint some of these things um, and I'm like doing what I can to kind of address them but i also know that like with most everything else and most everyone else it's like there's a lot of patience and grace and compassion mm-hmm. that you that i kind of need to give myself right now and to just be okay with things maybe moving a little slower than i would like because it's just you know we're still in a fucking pandemic yeah so we had yeah. a narrowly averted fucking insurrection in the capital and you know just like all this shit of like oh my fucking god <laughs> like when you think that it can't get it's like every every time that i feel like we've reached rock bottom like okay it can't get any worse than this and then there's this one other thing that's like oh no it's not a ton worse it's just it's a little bit worse now yeah. and it's gonna be a little bit worse now yeah. and okay it's gonna be a little bit it's like just stop yeah. you know yeah yeah yeah, it's so important to be to be gentle. I mean, I've found myself in very much the same. Like, as soon as night, when night falls, like, my brain goes off. Oh, yeah. Like, it's distraction time. And, but actually, I've found I'm trying to, I have a hard time going back into, sometimes I have a hard time reading as well, actually. But I'm trying to go back to, like, listening to, um, like, good pop, like, thoughtful podcast mm-hmm. instead of murder podcast <laughs> yeah it's good but yeah like do you know the podcast on being it's so good Ooh, so I like gentle and smart i've been um like i used to listen to i used to listen to npr on, at, at the shop um mm-hmm. but with the like the pandemic and the election i was like i i can't I know that yeah. like all the coverage is going to be this shit and I just, I can't deal with it. So I've been leaning really hard on, on music and podcasts. Um, yeah. And I've been blowing through the like back catalogs of most of the podcasts that I've come across. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm always on the lookout. I'm, I'm currently working through the, like the free episodes of uh, Dan Carlin's hardcore history. Oh. <laughs> nice. Um, which has been like, one of the one of the greatest classes I've ever had in my entire academic career was uh, two semesters of Russian history when I was an undergrad, uh, oh. taught by Dr. Chet. And in those two classes, my ability to like synthesize information and to see patterns and to see just like all of the parts of stuff, I don't think were ever greater. Um, mm. And listening to hardcore history has has been little like dips into that space of like oh shit all of this stuff is connected then you got to talk about this because it impacts this which influences this and then that goes around and like well there's all these other influences and it's it's been it's been really nice to like if i have to sand or just you know like assemble a bunch of cabinets at the shop that don't require things that don't require a ton of like mental uh attention Mm -hmm. um it's nice to be able to just have you know and his episodes are like six hours long 
So oh, wow. Like, I can get, I can listen to at least maybe one of these in a day. And it's, it's nice to just have that as a, as a, like a, a background thing. Yeah, that is nice. Particularly, I mean, I just find that with the, you know, being alone, I like live alone with my cat and having, having another little voice <laughs> is it's very nice, who I don't necessarily have to respond to. <laughs> right. Yeah. But having a smart, soothing voice that is speaking interesting content is always uh, yeah. satisfying. I know? agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think, I think that's going to do it. Um, thank you again so, so much for, for agreeing to, to talk to me and be a part of this. This is a really, really enjoyable way to spend, uh, almost two hours on a Saturday afternoon. <laughs> yes. Agreed. Yeah. Thanks for finding me. Yeah. Um, and as always, thank you for the, thank you to the listeners. Um, I've been keeping an eye on where people are listening from, um, it's amazing still amazing to me that like people halfway across the world listen to this podcast um that's very gratifying um but uh i guess in signing off sophie do you have any any imparting words that you'd like to leave the the audience oh um take care of yourself uh you know don't lose hope (laughs) uh take your meds drink some water you're going to be okay. Solid, That's solid. <laughs> solid advice. Um, and I will talk to y'all next time.